and welcome to Parenting Help with Vigio Behavior Consulting. Join us for conversations with experts in the fields of cognitive behavior, mental health, behavior analysis, education, and child psychology. On this podcast, we examine the challenges that parents are facing and share insights and strategies that have helped other parents with similar issues. I'm your host, Katie Palmer. I'm a parenting coach and board-certified behavior analyst. I'm also the owner of Vigio Behavior Consulting. I am fortunate to be able to engage in conversations with some incredible professionals whose depth and breadth of experience can offer guidance for parents who are looking for new ideas. I hope you find this podcast useful, engaging, and insightful. Hello, Sean. Welcome. It is so nice to have you with me today. Katie, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, I'm so excited. This, this topic is, is huge. Um, and I want to just take a moment to have uh, folks hear a little bit about you from you. Um, this is Dr. Sean O'Dell, who is a licensed psychologist practicing in Pennsylvania. And so, Sean, if you could tell our audience a little bit about who you are and, and what you do, that would be a fantastic way to start. Sure. So, yep, I'm a licensed psychologist in Pennsylvania. Um, recently started up a private practice, which is located in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, and so I work with kids and families doing therapy. I also d have started doing consultation with um, adults around promoting well-being so some of my clients are organizations some are individuals some are you know parents and that's specifically the context um i also am writing some research grants with a company called jasper health to improve um, and develop some mental health apps for kids and families so that's been exciting that's and so fantastic yeah really fun <clears throat> as fun as grant writing can be I'll say that. Um, <laughs> We're th thinking about like, oh, what the grant could lead to that, you know, wonderful access for kids. Yeah, and exactly. Really extending the access to behavioral health care that's effective. Yeah. yeah. Beyond what, you know, one person at a time could offer. Yeah, and just expanding that impact. I love that concept. And um, certainly what we're hoping to do with this podcast is, is to offer the insight for lots more families than, than any of us could see individually. So mm -hmm. thank you so much for your time. Um, this topic uh, that, that we're gonna talk about today is, is so broad. Um, and, and if we're lucky, we might have you back <laughs> if, if the opportunity fun. presents, because um, okay. we won't get, get it all covered today, I'm sure. Um, so what we're gonna talk about today is how parents can become effective advocates, not just for themselves, but for their children in the various systems that they find themselves working in right at this point in time. And I guess the way I was hoping to start, Sean, is if you could talk a little bit about, imagine um, we, have, um, we have a parent who, whose child has had a recent diagnosis and even though the parents may have sort of suspected or thought maybe this was coming, now suddenly it's here. 
and the impact of that. And now the different parts of the medical system or the educational system that parents have to navigate, where do they begin? What a big question. <laughs> sorry, yeah, sorry, way too big. Well, you know, what they say about psychologists, right, is we're not ethically allowed to answer like yes, no questions. We just always say it depends. So <laughs> the one thing that I think you can always say is that you have to start from where you're at. And so I think it, it really matters for a parent in a situation like this to really consider everything about um, what their history is bringing into the scenario, what they're, what they're seeing as the expert on their kid. And in terms of advocacy, what comes to mind for me is that you're trying to, to advocate for, for your kid's well-being yeah. <laughs> in every, yeah. every way that this new diagnosis could affect that. Um, so one, uh, quote that I, I wish I could find the attribution for this quote, but I heard it a while back. It's that every parent wants great things for all kids and a little bit better for their own kid. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we do. Yeah. It's pretty normal. That's pretty normal. so normal. So it can get kind of charged when you're thinking of, as a parent, how do you approach this? And so if you're getting the, you know, this new diagnosis, this new label, wherever it's coming from, right? Say the label or, or the diagnosis is coming from the education sector. Mm -hmm. That kind of looks different, you know, where the natural first place to start would be versus if you get it through the medical system. Yeah, I've noticed that. In, in a couple places where a medical diagnosis does different things in the educational system than a a, something that the educational system has assessed um, and, and a diagnosis has different meaning in different contexts there. Yeah. Autism's one, mm -hmm. ADHD is another. You can go on down the line. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes a, a turf oriented thing. Yeah. Even how emotional disturbance is classified or, or what falls right. under emotional disturbance right. is different in the medical system than the educational system, right? Yep. So that'd be one really important thing for, for parents to understand is that anything that you can get a medical diagnosis for may or may not correspond to what an educational classification would be in a schools. And then all the resources, interventions that that could unlock very, very different processes. Yeah. So you, you, you mentioned just then all the resources and interventions, and my mind went right to if, if I show up at the doctor and my child receives a, a diagnosis of, let's say, autism, um, many of my clients have children with autism, suddenly I'm, as a parent, being told, okay, your child needs speech and language, your child needs OT, your child needs ABA, but suddenly there's so many things I'm supposed to go do and go figure out. And I haven't seen a medical provider who delivers a diagnosis also be able to um, help a family navigate that. I hope there are systems out there where there are some individuals helping parents navigate that, still, all those systems. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of I don't know if it's fragmentation or siloing or how we would describe it. Well, yeah, I think there, there's a bit of both. There's also the alphabet soup that mm -hmm. you mentioned. Oh, I did that, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, 
And so we're insiders. So we, we do that all the time. Can you fix that for me? No, I, I wish I had the levers of control on that. Well, maybe I don't, but, but either way, I don't actually have the levers of control on that. Um, but I think that one thing that comes to mind for me is that, uh, just recognize as a parent that there wasn't an instruction manual for how to raise your child at all. And you've done it to that point. This is another learning curve that you need to navigate if you receive a label like that or a diagnosis like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, hopefully whoever gave that to you, that label, that diagnosis does do some psych psychoeducation around that and help you and point you towards resources. And if they don't, this is a great first step for advocacy. Ask that provider, right? If they're giving you the label, right? If they're qualified to do that, they probably do have a lot of resources and information that could point you towards. So that would be the first step I would say. And yeah, having the presence of mind to do that, right? So <laughs> the emotions that come with this kind of, I, I describe it as overwhelm. I've heard it described as overwhelm. Um, and if psychoeducation is not necessarily offered by your provider, pausing and can we slow down a moment and think about, all right, I'm going to ask for this. I'm going to ask for some, some assistance in understanding what I'm going through and what my next steps need to be. How, how do parents do that? Like, how can they slow down? <laughs> I mean, they do it as, as well as you can, as often yeah. as you can. So, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this and you've received the label, then it went how it went for you. It's a really normal experience when you get that feedback and get a label that everything else is like the Charlie Brown voice, like womp, womp, womp. So if I'm giving a weighty diagnosis like autism or really anything mm -hmm. that a parent would be really concerned with, I always tell them the, the conclusion first for that reason. Because if I'm doing a lengthy explanation, about everything, no one's listening to me, I found, right? Because yeah. the same reason, you know, so if, if it happens that way and you feel, you know, kind of flooded with information, give yourself time to process that. If you didn't ask questions, don't beat yourself up over that, you know, send the message, make the phone call, just keep coming back to the advocacy. And how did, how would you describe um, the barriers to effective advocacy? Or how would you describe effective advocacy? Maybe that is, is the better question to start with. If a parent really wants to do, take all the right steps, um, first of all, it's probably not going to happen. We're all going to fall on our faces a little bit. But if they would like to be moving as effectively as possible, are there key components to that? Sure. Yeah. So being effective, I, you know, as act people, acceptance and commitment therapy people, we got to connect the workability to the goals that we have. Yeah. So if you get the, the autism diagnosis, we'll stick with that example. That'd be just fine because there are so many services <laughs> and yeah. it's such a, a long course that you, you need to be thinking about if you receive that diagnosis. Um, so the goal, you know, I think, think often is very, very easy. I think for, 
for providers and then by extension for parents to be thinking about trying to reduce, eliminate the symptoms that go along with the, with the disorder. Um, and that is important. That's an important part of it. But if you're thinking about something like autism, there's not a cure for that. So my mind goes to something that's more like management, like a chronic medical condition as a better analogy for what you want to think about and what would autism left untreated prevent your child from being able to do one day right? you know, independent living would be a huge goal, right? So if you think about that and, and just a, a full, rich, meaningful life that I hope, you know, we're all aiming for, for, for our kids, you know, these big goals, you may have to kind of zoom your perspective out to the right size perspective in order to figure out what the right next step would be. And you, you want to be always balancing out, you know, what can I do right here and right now that would, it seems like the, the right fit for this scenario and is building towards the long-term outcomes that I know I want for my child. I'm hearing a little bit of a need to, I love that idea of zooming out. Um, and it made me think of needing to, again, that, that slowing down theme that I often come back to, but focusing on what is important as a parent, what do I want for my child? What, what values do I have around um, imagining my child as a, as a grown adult? And taking that perspective of you know, 15, 20 years from now, what am I hoping for? Not that we want to change who our children are, but can we give them the tools and, and how do we give them tools in the context of things that they may not be learning the same way as other kids? And this, this idea of managing symptoms or reducing symptoms of autism as a way to achieve what we want for our children, that's a lot of thought. It's a heck of a lot. <laughs> yeah. Because, because it's hard enough if your child is typically developing. Mm-hmm. Right. And now yeah, I don't I don't know how often I thought about that. Things. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. It just got so much more complex for you. Right. <laughs> you know? it, it, yeah. Yeah. And so all the normal things that may show up as you try to advocate get amplified too, I think. You know, so it might be for, for anyone, you know, self-doubt. Like, do I know enough here to advocate? Mm-hmm. Or they know best. They must, right? The advice they're giving me. They seem really sure of it. I don't know. Yes, but I've seen this other thing where I read over here. Right. You know, there's conflicting information. And then I bring it up and I'm dismissed or ignored, maybe. Right. Yeah. All these things can happen. Yeah. And can over time be really hard to not just take the first no for, for the answer when you feel strongly about something as a parent and you're advocating. I think another one that would be pretty normal and, and then amplified here is internalized stigma. You know, so getting any of these labels, autism is definitely one. A lot of stigma around behavioral health, mental health development. Yeah. Right. So that can be amplified because, you know, you're going to have to 
learn to show up and be uncomfortable, maybe first, <laughs> in order to get comfortable. Or maybe you never feel totally comfortable, but would you still be willing to do that if it meant that you're doing everything that you can as a parent to put your child in that position to be living independently, to be, you know, living a life that feels forward to meaningful. That's where the act skills, I think, come in. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of a number of conversations I've had with clients where this, this internalized stigma comes up. Um, we all want to be wonderful parents. We just do. We want to be wonderful parents. And even though in our minds, we can say to ourselves, you know, my child has anxiety or my child has ADHD or autism, and that doesn't create a, a good or bad label on my parenting, even though we can say that in our heads, sometimes our bodies and our hearts are arguing <laughs> with that notion. We feel the judgment from others. And, and what, I, what I hear from you is this, this idea of, can I sit with that, the, the horrible discomfort of thinking I'm a bad parent and still ask questions and maybe even disagree in constructive ways with a provider. Mm -hmm. Oh, very good points. So on the one hand, the challenges, and again, it's not, not just always what's happening inside of you. Mm -hmm. You may very literally be being told that you're a bad parent. I think some of the most painful things that parents tell me are the feedback they get from other people when they're in public with their child. Yes. Right. So, and this can happen from medical professionals, from educators, right? Um, but the other thing that stands out to me about that is that it could also go the other way, right? We can get very self-righteous. We can. As well. <laughs> when, when we know what we're talking about. I've been there. It yep. happens. For, oh yeah, me too. Yep. Um, so I, I've worked out for myself and I need to remind myself of this a lot yeah. and I can be right and unhelpful at the same time. Yes. So there's a phrase and, and any of the, the folks who are listening, who have worked with me will, will chuckle, but I'd rather be happy than right. Mm, yeah. Is a mantra that I, I have to use if I feel myself getting to that place of self-righteousness, um, which happens a lot for me as a parent. Um, and a, lot, a little bit for me as a professional. And I, in order to bring that back down, that phrase is super helpful to me. And mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Many times it doesn't matter that I am right. If I destroy a relationship that I need to work. Right. Absolutely. And so I think that's a huge point as an advocate, mm -hmm. thinking about an advocate role as a parent, relationships really are key. They really are key. And conflict is going to be necessary. And uh, I mean, I don't know what comes up for you when you hear that word conflict, Katie, but I think most people think of it as a four letter word. Mm, yeah. And it, and it's uncomfortable again, back to that discomfort. Yeah, discomfort. Yeah. And for, for many people, it's tied to um, some traumatic experiences in their past. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that, that tendency of conflict avoidance I can think of five different ways it leads to 
challenges when we're advocating for our child. Because if I leave a if I leave the office of a medical provider and I have not engaged in a in a debate about something that matters to me, mm-hmm. I may fire that provider and go find another one that's going to agree with me. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Which, I, which, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, <laughs> some danger no there. Not just one way. Right. right. You can collect your own echo chamber of professionals. <laughs> that could be one thing that would happen. I I'm also that one down too, the echo chamber of professionals. <laughs> right. It's really good, I think, to have some diversity of thought from various professionals. And sometimes parents' voices are silenced as an important part of that. Um, but I also think too about privileges that that I'm afforded, right? You wouldn't, it's a podcast, right? So you can't, <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm, I'm a white guy, I'm six foot six, I have a bunch of letters after my name. Right. If I ask a question, it's just often received different. Yeah. Right? I'm not a member of really any historically disenfranchised group. So that's why I think in my role as a professional, I try to amplify voices when they need to be amplified from my clients and help them navigate these things. And those are, I hope, like the the qualities that would be a provider that you want to shop around for, (laughs) you know, because I'll also be really straight with a client if what they're asking for, you know, is not likely to work because we all have opportunity costs. There's only so much time in the day. Yeah. Um, and some sometimes recommendations that you might come across on your own from Dr. Google might, you know, be harmful potentially. Yeah. But that's not what Dr. Google might tell you about that. What are some of the ways that you have found effective to amplify the voices uh, of those who aren't yet ready or or don't yet have the skills to amplify their own thoughts in in constructive ways what have you done to help that along because there's no like the timeline is ticking and so as parents if we're trying to learn new skills of communicating with lots of different providers and sort of setting aside our discomfort and, and moving into that space of advocacy and maintaining relationships that uh, there is a sense of urgency as, as a parent. I know I felt this. Um, I, I see it in many of my clients. How do we, how do we learn these skills when we're feeling so rushed? A little bit at a time, mm-hmm. you know, just keep getting better at it. Cause again, if it, if it's a diagnosis like autism, you, you trust me, you got a long runway here yeah. <laughs> of learning and getting better at this. But one stream of it would be things that I do on behalf of my clients. Another would be things that I coach and prepare them to do to be more effective advocates. Yeah. Um, but for, I guess, think, think for parents, um, one is just educating them about the status quo and healthcare and education, the reality mm-hmm. of the systems. And we go through and talk about some of the historical and contemporary issues there. It's like, oh, okay, that's crazy, but it makes sense. It's like, yeah. I don't know why it would ever be that way. Who would build it that way? Right. You know, but it does make a lot more sense to them and helps them step into the advocate role when 
they see that, you know, for instance, special education is very much slanted, you know, with the power relationship on the school side. But, yeah. you know, there's no flyers that I've ever seen in a school about educating yourself about due process, <laughs> special education, right? That's yeah. not a thing. But there are special education advocates out there if and when you need them. But a lot of it really has to do with trying to prioritize the relationships because no one really wants to lean on transactions all the time and make things transactional that are so personal. Mm -hmm. You know, teachers, it's very personal. I've, I've never met a teacher for whom their work wasn't deeply personal. Same thing for healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. So yeah. connecting more into the partnership there, I think, will help you go much farther together. Um, other things that I might do and facilitate at schools would be to try to reach out to teachers, uh, counselors, school psychologists. One of the things that I find is almost never present is some kind of daily homeschool communication. And that can skew a lot of things, right? We know from what we do that all you have to do is self-monitor and behavior changes. <laughs> yeah. So if, if the, if the status quo there is teacher, for, for example, not picking on teachers, just saying it's very typical and it makes sense actually that it would be this way. If the status quo uh, for homeschool communication is I'll let you know if your kid acts out, right? There's an unintended implication, you know, implication of that is that if, if I hear nothing, right. Yeah, I don't even know if it's a good, I don't even know. Right. Yeah. But it's, like I'm just waiting, if I'm on the parent side, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm left wondering, right? There's a pairing there too. Like yeah. I see the teacher's name in my email inbox and I'm like, uh-oh, right? It's like, oh, yes. I know something's right. And exactly. that it doesn't necessarily build a good relationship no. when there's, there's this aversive reaction, just the presence of the teacher's name. Um, and that's certainly unintended consequence um, that teachers or special educators don't understand is going to happen right? if there isn't that, um, you know, positive feedback along the way. And I do know, I want to speak a little bit on behalf of um, the brilliant teachers and special educators that I've worked with who do these things that you're suggesting. Um, and I, I, I hope someday they hear this um, and they, they will know who they are. Um, there are, there are habits that they have built in spite of, the hundreds of children that they are serving every day um, that support this idea of a balanced feedback loop. I think that's such a good point because one, I'd probably biased towards meeting these folks mm -hmm. because if a parent's coming to me and we're working on this stuff, then there's something that needs to be worked on. So yes. it's probably not those folks <laughs> charge for one thing. Right. Exactly. But that, I think that's another thing to put into the bucket of what a parent would want to look for in an educator or a healthcare professional, someone that does know how to cut through the red tape and bureaucracy of wherever they work to get things done mm -hmm. and don't, you know, find ways basically, you know, to, to not let, you know, these important things fall by the wayside. I'm sort of trying to add up the list of things that we've, we've offered for parents um, at this point, like how to look for, how to, sit with their own discomfort, um, how to ask questions, the importance of asking questions, 
even if it's a question like, hey, what you're telling me goes against some of the other things that I'm learning. Can we talk about the discrepancy? Yeah, just skilling up and, and having difficult conversations. I mean, if you work yeah. on that, it's going to help you in this role and help you in your whole life. Yeah, right. You know, a lot of good reasons to work on that. And, you know, I think also there's a, an opportunity here potentially for, you mentioned a moment ago, this idea that parents who are coming to you, thing, things have gone pretty badly wrong at some point, something's not working um, or they wouldn't be coming to you. And same for me, you know, it, yeah. things aren't going well if yeah. people are seeking outside help that, that we tend to provide. What is the mechanism for creating an awareness that, you know, hey, folks, come to us before things go wrong? Can we, you know, yes, I want to add that to your plate. Yes, I, I know you're busy. Mm -hmm. And this preventative medicine is going to be really good. <laughs> this preventative medicine is going to save you time down the road. Like, how do we get that word out? Is is that a useful way for parents to spend? I mean, I think so, but I'm a little bit biased about that. Oh, oh, I mean, oh, I definitely think so. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, you know, if they can get plugged into the right um, organizations, that might be more possible, right? So I think it, you know, kind of searching around for that, but very intentionally so that when you notice it, you're like, ah, all right, I found this piece of the puzzle. Let's yep. see how far I can take that and so on and keeping on going with that. Um, but on the medical side, I think one of the things that I often coach my clients around is the, the time pressures and the high caseloads of almost any medical professional. Um, and so helping them get really organized and focused heading into appointments with their medical professionals so that, okay, they have everything that they need and they're, you get a very quick download, which helps them go farther with the time that they have. Um, so I yeah. found that to be pay really big dividends for clients. And that's, that's a skill set. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to compartmentalize a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause you know, there's no way of talking about in the 15 minute appointment with the pediatrician, everything that's important to manage autism. Yeah. No way. Yeah. But what's the, what's the one thing that would make things a little bit better? if you could solve with your pediatrician today. Yeah. And I've given the same advice for um, parents walking in, into an IEP meeting, uh, especially if they are seeing, you know, 10 different things that they're really upset about, helping them prioritize which one is the most important. Yeah. Um, and, and how can you ask that question to facilitate conversation instead of um, creating defensiveness? And I think that's touching on maybe one of the other common themes that I do see that can be hangups for, for parents trying to advocate is the analysis paralysis part mm -hmm. where, you know, these 10 things I can't, you know, has to be right. We can't move on anything until we move on all 10. You know, that's very self-defeating, unfortunately. So, so it's really important, even though it requires facing discomfort and, you know, um, doing a lot of things that are, are really challenging, including how to have productive conflict with professionals. Um, it's crucial. 
Have you ever given um, workshops to medical providers or educators on, on the same topic, how to have productive conflict? Yes. I love that. Yeah. So I think a lot of it comes down to mindset for them. The ones that want and show up to these workshops, you know. Yes. Like, <laughs> these are the folks we want to send our clients to. I've <laughs> also given workshops um, on approaches like motivational interviewing yes. that are all about partnership. Yes. About behavior change and like how did this person get in like we need to screen this person out they're just trying to tank the whole training so uh, and when there when there is a, an expert i know best and you just need to comply mm-hmm. mindset i would say that'd be a great signal for you to just move on find a different provider if at all possible um but one of the things that when i've done trainings and helped out medical providers or school personnel is often the challenge that they face is there's there's so much energy coming from the client and there's often ambivalence too right so am i's really uh, applicable here mm-hmm. people feel two ways about all kinds of change <laughs> and one, one of the pediatricians that i've worked with has a saying uh, that i think fits here that only babies like to be changed and then only some babies. <laughs> I'm going to write that one down too. But the change that we get to pick for ourselves, we tend to like a lot more Yes. than what we're directed to do, I think is the take home from that. And Back so to that idea of compliance. Compliance versus partnership, yeah. right? Or am I would say like, Wrestling and dancing are both collaborative activities, but they have a very different feel to them. <laughs> Which would you rather be doing? That kind of I'd much rather be dancing. Yes, and, and pediatricians do too, and everyone does at the end of the day. Um, so those are the kind of skills that that I might work on with colleagues yeah. to help them do what I would. I guess this would be un, under the umbrella of what I would call shared decision making. Yeah. You know, over and over and over again in the literature, this is what patients ask for. Parents are asking for shared decision making. And it's really difficult for a lot of reasons. Um, not the least of which is training and how to have those conversations on the provider side or the yeah. educator side, you know, but you know, that might be their side of things to work on. There are, there are so many more things um, we could talk about with regard to this, and we are running out of time. Mm. Um, we knew we would. Yeah, we did. We knew we would. And um, I, if you're willing to come back uh, and have more conversations with me, uh, there's so much more we can learn about even getting a little more concrete for parents and then for professionals um, on steps to recognizing discomfort, sitting with it, being willing, keeping keeping that ultimate goal of our child's success as an adult uh, in mind. Um, we can we can drill down a little bit more on that. So more to come. Um, Sean, I want to thank you so much for the conversation. As always, inspiring to talk to you. And um, I hope people have found this really insightful and helpful as I have. I look forward to talking with you again. Well, I hope they do too. Katie, thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome. Thank you.